welcome to the Words Matter podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. And a quick note to thank all of you that support the podcast via Patreon. Your contributions make a big difference. So we're into episode four of the Clinical Reasoning series, and I continue my conversation with philosopher of medicine, Professor Björn Hoffman, where we develop our discussion, which started on the ethical implications of disease in the previous episode, to now move on to overdiagnosis and medicalization. And for reference, we speak about Bjorn's 2016 paper titled Medicalization and Overdiagnosis, Different but Alike, which was published in the journal Medicine, Healthcare and Philosophy. And as always, I've linked the paper in the show notes. And in this episode, we speak about distinguishing between the concepts of medicalization and overdiagnosis, and we discuss their main drivers. We talk about how medicine, healthcare and health professionals have become ever more diligent in defining, detecting, preventing and treating disease, covering more ground than ever, and how this can lead to the adverse situation of overdiagnosis. We talk about the positive and adverse effects of giving someone a diagnostic label. And we also talk about what Bjorn terms the asymmetry of aversion, meaning that for many health professionals, it's worse to overlook something than to overdo something, which may further facilitate overdiagnosis. And we talk about the role of AI and machine learning to address the crudeness and imprecision of some of our diagnostic labelling. And we talk about high and low value care and the role of healthcare economics on how readily we dip into our diagnostic toolkit. And finally, we discuss what we can do to reduce the detrimental expansion of disease and subsequent overdiagnosis. So this was another wonderful conversation with Bjorn. He's able to transfer incredibly thought-provoking yet fundamental questions to clinical practice and our care of people. And I'm immensely grateful to him for giving up so much of his time. So once again, I bring you Professor Björn Hoffman. Björn, welcome back to the podcast again. Thank you for having me. So this is just following from the the last part of our conversation on the ethics of disease. And we're going to talk a bit more about the other aspect of your work, about medicalization and overdiagnosis. And I'll just kind of reference a crucial paper to this conversation, which you wrote back in 2016, titled Medicalization and Overdiagnosis, Different but Alike. And that would be a great place to start, is to unpack what the differences are and what both ideas mean. Yeah, so... Both medicalization and overdiagnosis is in a way uh, a critique of the way uh, medicine and healthcare has developed. Uh, and in a way, it's a critique uh, 
of uh, maybe we have become too good, uh, so that we are overdoing that we use the toolbox of medicine and healthcare beyond uh, what it's uh, good at. But it's interesting to to notice uh, that the two types of critique, they have in a way very different origins. But also what I try to point out in, in the article is that they in a way converge much more than lately or, or lately. Just um, to indicate where, where they come from, the uh, medicalization debate and the critique of uh, medicalization comes in a way from outside of medicine, specifically the social sciences. While overdiagnosis uh, and the awareness of that and discussing that concept as a critique of modern medicine comes from inside, from, from health professionals. Uh, so that's... Uh, in a way, a, a difference in, in their origin, which is important to, uh, to notice that uh, one is an external critique and the other one is a more internal critique. But I, I suppose just on that point, there would have been a time when medicalization would have been a, an aspiration. Let's medicalize things and let's diagnose things. And, and so at what point did it become a problem? And, and when did we start, were there calls to begin to scale back this pursuit to, to just classify everything and everyone with disease? I, I think uh, we can look a little bit at the uh, definitions and the differences between the definitions. Let that um, be clear at the outset. There are many definitions of yeah. both medicalization and overdiagnosis, but in a way, uh, a seminal definition or a general definition of medicalization is it that it is a, a process by which human problems become to be defined and treated as medical problems. Uh, and the definition of overdiagnosis is that it is a condition diagnosed that would otherwise not go on to cause symptoms or disease or death in the person. So when we look at medicalization, uh, the worry uh, initially there uh, was that we make medical human problems that are better dealt with elsewhere. And uh, some of the worries were that by moving some of the challenges to healthcare, we in a way take the responsibility from other actors uh, and we deprive other actors the responsibility and ability to do something about that. So that was one worry uh, with regards to uh, medicalization. And that was also why it uh, was considered negative because they, they thought that, well, then it in a way derails good ways of handling uh, these, these challenges. And of course, there are many examples. I mean, shyness, sorrow, sadness, low addiction, death, poverty, pregnancy, childbirth, Boldness, menopause, sexual function, mood, behavior, beauty, race, aging, and compulsive buying, and a lot of other examples that have been discussed as, as medicalization. On the flip side, you know, I mean, thinking about where this episode, where this conversation sits, sits in the context of the clinical reasoning series, and so much of clinical reasoning or medical thinking is geared towards a diagnosis. The end goal is to reach some sort of conclusion through inference or deduction that this is what you've got wrong with you. This is what it is. 
And with that, patients seek healthcare professionals to often obtain some kind of diagnosis. I mean, there's often relief in in many cases from patients that they're being given an explanation or some explanatory label about why they're feeling the way that they're feeling. And so I suppose to, to get the balance right, that in some cases, diagnoses, the potential benefit to patients in alleviating uh, it can be it's, it's, it's two ways. It can either cause more fear, anxiety, but on the other hand, it actually might be helpful and comforting and, and necessary for them to begin to to move forward. Yes, it's quite clear that uh, disease, having a disease and uh, getting a diagnosis uh, has a, a very important epistemic function, both to persons uh, having the condition or disease and professionals, because it can explain to myself why I'm experiencing illness and it can explain to professionals both what uh, is wrong with me but also what they should do mm. and uh, the prognosis uh, may be known so that I know also not only what I have but also how I will fare in the future. So there are obviously many, many good aspects of uh, diagnosing disease. But I think what, what a lot of uh, the medicalization critique uh, mm. uh, of the early days were worried about was that this had gone too far. I think, uh, as I point out also in, in, in the article, that lately people have looked much more positive also on medicalization, highlighting the points that, that you do, that, well, by making something a, a medical problem or a health-related problem, we are able to help people and people benefit in many ways uh, from having a disease label or or a diagnosis. When it comes to overdiagnosis, uh, you could say that, well, uh, the worry there has been that, well, we have become too good. That is, by knowing much more about diseases and disease entities and their progression, we are able to find precursors of disease. We are able to find indicators of disease and predictors of disease. And then we have a tendency to make these precursors, predictors or indicators diseases as such, or we call them diseases. And uh, this is all good, but the problem occurs uh, at the point uh, when all these things that we are able to identify do not result in symptoms, disease, or any types of suffering for the person. A more easy way to say that is that, well, uh, when we have become so good that we detect a lot of conditions that people die with and not from, we have become excessive in diagnosing, i.e. overdiagnosing. I mean, we just when you said that last bit, we can't escape COVID, can we? And statistics around death and people dying with COVID and dying from COVID. And uh, and I don't want to get into, into COVID, but it, it makes me think that presumption around causation is a very singular and linear is problematic that that you can both die with and from this that, that yes you you didn't die from covid but it certainly didn't help you not dying from pancreatic cancer for example definitely and of course uh, uh, i guess we, we shouldn't uh, go into the the field of causation, although it's uh, tremendously uh, tempting, but I think yeah, I could just kind of cross-reference the Cause Health series that, which I know that you, exactly, you're familiar exactly. with. Exactly, that was why what <laughs> I also uh, thought about. But I, I think uh, differentiating between 
contributing factors and uh, other types of mm. more important factors can be good to do here. Uh, but also uh, with regards to overdiagnosis and indicators, uh, the problem is knowing. I mean, uh, there's no doubt that, for instance, having polyps is something that can increase your risk of having colorectal cancer because the polyps, uh, that's where the cancerous cells start to develop uh, most often. But making these polyps disease is, uh, is uh, uh, doing too much because uh, most of the polyps never ever develop cancer. So we should just be careful. Uh, I think we, we should continue to look for precursors of disease. Uh, we should continue to look for risk factors and indicators of disease, but we should be very careful with connecting them to disease as such. We should treat them as risk factors and indicators and precursors. And, and I think what might be a good example is thinking about the previous episode or previous conversation about the kind of social societal kind of first person aspects of disease and also the biomedical so thinking about polyps society isn't viewed as being ill with polyps right you're not you can still care for your parents there's still a moral duty to to kind of look after you you wouldn't sorry i just can't look after my my kids because i've got polyps <laughs> um or i can't go to work i need time off work to you know, my polyps just impact. I mean, that that doesn't work. So I'm just trying to link the the two, right? This is why it's, polyps isn't a disease by certainly the classification kind of framework you provided before. Yes, and we we don't have uh, moral imperatives or moral impetus towards do something uh, about polyps in the same way as we have mm. uh, when a person experiences suffering uh, in in front of us. We definitely, I mean, with regards to uh, prevention and health promotion, we, we definitely do have duties. But uh, I would argue that our duties are more primarily towards people who suffer. I think our duties towards avoiding and ameliorating uh, suffering is stronger than I, our duties to make people happy. But that's uh, an ethical issue. Yeah. I mean, the rabbit hole here is that to find out you've got polyps for some, just the knowledge of that is in itself an unpleasant thought is yeah. suffering in itself. It's that you, you begin to prognose yourself and think, right, this is the beginning of the end. So I can see there would be a moral imperative for medicine to obviously reduce the risk of those polyps developing into carcinoma, but also also they'd remove the anxiety by <laughs> you know, that reassurance that you could you could help some psychological suffering. That makes yep. any sense. Yeah, and of course, in, in the case of uh, of, uh, of polyps, you also have to take into account that okay, when professionals discover them, uh, very often they are removed. But of course, removing them also uh, comes with a certain risk of bleeding and perforation of uh, and and. That has to be taken into account as well. And that also uh, adds to why we may be a little bit more cautious with regards to considering putting the same moral weight on, on polyps as we do as uh, to, to cancer, for instance, uh, colorectal cancer, where we have cells that are cancerous compared to polyps. Perhaps you could just say a bit more about the some of the the driving factors behind overdiagnosis and medicalization what why do we find ourselves in this situation what's been the the main drivers for for this there are 
not uh, malicious drivers behind that. I think uh, the drivers are uh, predominantly good. Hmm. They want to do good. And of course, in case of uh, medicalization, uh, you really want to help people. Uh, so uh, that's maybe why you want to address school behavior or other types of behavior or for instance, grief, uh, you want to help people. So that's why you want to make uh, grief a disease. And, and the same goes for, for overdiagnosis because you now can find all these risk factors, the precursors and the indicators that may become disease. You really want to do something about that and you want to help people by preempting their possibility of, of having disease. But the challenge then of course that uh, we should address is that maybe sometimes we have become too good that is we identify things that never would have bothered the person so and on the medicalization side the, the worry is that we make something disease which would have been better dealt with elsewhere by other institutions by families by networks uh, so so that's the worry uh, in that camp. But the drivers are, I think, very often good. They really want to do good, but sometimes we just overdo. So we have to, in a way, reflect on when our tools stop doing good and when they are, are over the top. I do not deny that there are uh, people who are trying to profit from making people uh, disease and, and inventing diseases. And there's mm. been a huge literature on, on disease mongering and, and things like that. But I, I think uh, we shouldn't, we should balance that view by, by seeing that, well, it's maybe uh, due to our best abilities that we uh, enter into the field of, of overdiagnosis and, and also medicalization, like a Norwegian philosopher mm. has defined tragedy as uh, something you succumb because of your very best abilities so a tragedy is in a way when you when you try to do the very best but the result uh, may be the opposite so in a way you could say that medicine has uh, entered into a tragic position by using its tools beyond what they are good for and do, do you see ai helping in terms of taking away the the current kind of crudeness of our classification system and you know national screening get you've got polyps you go have them whatever chopped out burnt out will ai help us be more precise in how we're diagnosing people ah that's and who we're diagnosing that's a fantastic question uh, and the answer is yes and no i think uh, i'm not a prophet i'm a researcher but <laughs> anyway i i i think uh they're very good with uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning and the huge amounts of data that we have is that we can use that to be much more precise than we are now. So that's a fantastic opportunity that we really should apply and use as, as best as we can. The problem is how do we know that it is as good as it can be? Because how should we validate how should we verify that it actually works so what we should be worried about uh, i mean of the good side i think we can be much more precise with regards to our predictions and and stratification of risk factors and so forth the the, the backflip of it is that we may get a lot of false alarms a lot of red flags which we have to follow up uh, which is a good uh, way of preoccupying a lot of healthcare professionals but it may not do anything for patients in the end. So we should be worried about not getting too much noise. That's one thing we should worry about. And the other thing is we should worry about 
the epistemic aspects, how do we know that what we actually predict, what the red flags pop out, uh, really matters to the patient we have in front of us? Because the patient we have in front of us is not the person who the algorithm necessarily is built on. It's built on thousands, maybe millions of other people. So how do we really know that what the, the algorithm tells us is true, i.e. the black box problem uh, in a way? And the other moral aspect of that is uh, what about the responsibility? Who is responsible if the uh, algorithm tells us uh, and indicates to do something? Should we do it? Should we not do it? How much uh, responsibility does the person have? Uh, how much does the professional have? And so forth. So uh, I think uh, there are very good sides with uh, applying artificial intelligence and machine learning on, on the huge data sets that we can gather now. But at the same time, there are some aspects that we also uh, should be very much aware of, both epistemically and ethically. It doesn't necessarily couple or uncouple the illness disease relationship. So you just, I mean, again, I haven't thought much about this, but if you're becoming much more precise in, in saying who's got what and who hasn't, it doesn't have too much to say about the illness side of things, AI. I'm not, where does that, it's not able to say who's ill who and who's not, who's, the, Ill, the illness is whatever the person says it is. Yes, but um, I think uh, there are also tremendous opportunities by connecting illness closer uh, to to disease by AI and machine learning. Uh, and the reason is that uh, some of the data uh, may come from illness-related, uh, for instance, behavior data and things tracked by by health apps or, or things like that, moods and, and much more. So uh, I think uh, there are some very nice opportunities to, to include the illness perspective in the AI uh, and also a machine learning uh, way of uh, trying to analyze, make algorithms to help us. So, so uh, I think there are some opportunities, but at the same time, we have to be aware of uh, of some of the effects, for instance, looping effects that we can have in, in this case. And one quite trivial uh, example is uh, one morning uh, I, I came to work uh, some years ago and a, a colleague of mine, he, he looked a little bit tired. So I was a little bit worried because I, I knew he had worked very hard for, for quite some time. And I asked him, uh, oh, how, do, how are you? How did you sleep? And he said, oh, I slept fine. And then he took his uh, mobile phone and he looked at this app. No, I only stepped 64%. So this is a way, in a way, quite interesting how we think we measure something, uh, but how what we actually measure influences how we feel. So it's not, it doesn't go only one way from us to technology, but technology also influences us. So uh, when we all the data going into the uh, AI and the machine learning systems, uh, we have to be careful uh, how they are generated and what they actually mean. And sometimes that can be hard to figure out. When you've spoken about overdiagnosis, de-diagnosis with Marianne and medicalization, it seems initially that it's a, it's a call to professions and, and maybe society. And I just wonder... For the individual clinician who's with a patient, 
doesn't want to overdiagnose or medicalize. I mean, what are the, because it, it would seem like, you know, diagnostic categories and lists are generated, as you said, by kind of powerful organizations. And so I, I, I get that there's a call to those organizations to kind of, to refine and scale back their pursuit of diagnoses. What about individuals? I mean, how can, who, who are something bound by the rules set by the, the higher powers about guide, you know, clinical guidelines or you know, diagnostic um, kind of decision trees, things like that. How can we as individuals scale back our diagnoses? Whilst, whilst, I suppose whilst also caring for the individual and wanting to get things right. Yes, I, I think um, I, your question has several layers, which I think all are very important. One aspect of it is that I mean, we we're very occupied and preoccupied with uh, with uh, classification systems and refining them and uh, making them up to date and uh, grouping things correctly and, and things like that. And as patients, we are very preoccupied, of course, with with the diagnosis we have. But I, I think uh, it's important to to realize that these systems they change over time. A lot of new diagnoses come and all ones get out or they they merge with other diagnoses. So this is not in a way carving nature by its joints. And also uh, they are tools and they are tools to help professionals to classify and to know what to do. But they are imperfect tools, meaning that every individual being really unique does more or less fit within these classifications. So every case of pneumonia is uh, is in a way different, although there are many similarities, of course, and, and, and the classification systems, they, they target the similarities, uh, but in a way they ignore the differences. And, and that's where I think we as patients can experience challenges, but also where it's challenging to health professionals because... Uh, it's frustrating when you have uh, something which you can't classify because you don't know what to do. But still, it is a person, it is a suffering person, which you should take care of and try to help, even if the classification system doesn't work. Uh, that's the first part of your uh, excellent question. And another part is, uh, well, should we be more uh, careful but with applying uh, the toolbox uh, when we know that the toolbox is imperfect. It's good, but it's imperfect. Should we, in a way, be careful uh, about using it? I think there are many drivers uh, that, uh, in a way, counter uh, some kind of diagnostic austerity. Uh, and the reason is that I, as a patient, I want a diagnosis. I really crave it in a way. I want this type of examination and then I want that. And I think it's this because I've Googled it and then, and, and so forth. So as patients, we, we demand in a way uh, this, uh, this uh, system and professionals, they really want to help. And of course, um, there's... Um, what I've in another paper called asymmetry of aversion, meaning that uh, for health professionals to overlook something, to ignore something is worse than overdoing something. So because you have the headlines, they ignored Mary's cancer and now she has and so forth. But you never had they overdid uh, or they overdiagnosed because 
uh, when you are diagnosed, you think that you're helped, but you may, of course, be overdiagnosed. You don't know, your professional doesn't know, at least by the, the standards of today, we don't know. So this also is one, in a way, driver of, uh, of overactivity. And of course, uh, uh, industry tries to improve its both diagnostic and therapeutic measures, diagnosing ever milder conditions, which may not mean anything to the suffering and uh, well-being of, of persons at all. So all these are reasons to, to try to be careful with, uh, with uh, diagnosing, acknowledging how important it is. But uh, I think we should, in a way, try to be a little bit more careful and the reasons are in the case of overdiagnosing it, it can harm people you can give them a diagnosis you can treat them without necessary necessity they don't benefit from the treatment uh, on the contrary they may may be harmed and on the side of medicalization the condition which we make a medical condition or a health related mm. condition uh, may well have been better handled and treated by by other institutions. Yeah, I mean, it takes them down particularly a, a pathway to a, an intervention which they didn't need or would have otherwise had with a, a different diagnosis or certainly a different fr a different framing of the diagnosis. I think that's also important and giving some context to normal findings. And I think at least in my experience with MRI reports from around the back and spine that a bit more now there's some contextualization of some of those findings how common they are in in pain-free or symptom-free populations which which begins to counteract i suppose some of those harmful adverse events from diagnosis i think exactly uh, the example is, is is well taken because i mean uh, for most of us if you take an mri of the spine you will find all kinds of uh, old things and of course uh, most of us have back pain from time to time so if you take most of us into a, an MRI machine you find a lot of things that doesn't have any connection to the pain at all and that in a way points to the very core of uh, this article and also the previous article and other articles I've written is that all the things that we deal with in, in healthcare and medicine in particular needs to be related to what we experience as painful as suffering. So finding something can be good, but it has to be related to some kind of experience which the person has, i.e. suffering, because that's only then that we can help the person. Finding all the other things may be interesting for curiosity and you can use it in... Everyday uh, conversations, I have this and that yeah. on my back, but it doesn't help you to know that you have this and that. And for many purposes, it's better, at least for me, not to know uh, what is yeah. in my back. I think that's the coming back to the to the implications of the individual. This the skill is is to as a clinician is to to withhold using the diagnostic label without invalidating the person's experience. So if you can still say, listen, despite the scans coming back clear, for example, or the results being normal, you're pretty much saying you don't have this diagnostic label. But at the same time, I fully accept your experience and I entirely you know, want to validate that experience because that's the risk of withholding diagnoses or not wanting to kind of dish them out too readily. Exactly. 
you might lose the patient in so much as well. That means that it's all in my head and, you know, I haven't got this diagnosis, then what's causing my pain? That You know, the, the clinician just thought I was making it up. That's the potential risk, isn't it? Exactly. And I think that's, uh, and because the risk is so high of that and because uh, clinicians are very, connected to their patients, they're very concerned about their patients, they really want to keep their trust, they tend to uh, think that, well, to help them, I have to find a diagnosis, I have to send them to this uh, back MRI, I have to do that. But I think uh, more and more clinicians now are aware that doing so may actually harm them more than help them. But I think it's uh, it's not an easy task to say that, well, I acknowledge your illness. I know it's real. But with my toolbox, I'm not able to identify what causes it. And that frustrates me, really. But I don't think that uh, sending you to this MRI or taking these tests mm. will help. We have to figure out another way why you're suffering. Because... It's so easy just to take some tests or some examinations and everybody thinks that it's good because something is happening. The, the patient feels that the physician takes him or her seriously and, and things like that. But when you really look at it, it may not be taking people seriously because it may be looking in the wrong direction. So really looking at the suffering of the person. So that's where we go back to the, in a way, high touch and try to align in a way the high touch with the, the high tech so that we we rely too much on yeah. high tech today. And when uh, in another research project I'm, I'm in, we've interviewed GPs and, and radiologists and GPs, uh, they say that, well, it's so easy to, to refer the patient to, to another examination because then they feel uh, relieved. It, they feel it's something is happening and, and the, the physician takes care of me. But uh, sometimes uh, there are other things that should have been and could have been much more uh, helpful for them, but, but they are expected to do it. So that's also why they do it. So it's in a way the easy way. It's kind of flexing the technological muscles of medicine is showing, you know, you can show, you know, gadgets and gizmo and scans. The patient, I suppose in the short term, might feel reassured that they're working hard to get to the bottom of, of what's going on. Yes, yes. But often at the end of that, there isn't any any clear answers. No, and I mean, um, if they're lucky, there's no clear answer. But if they're unlucky, there are some answers which they have to pursue and which can be more harmful incidental findings mm. of, of different types. So so that's why I think it's important to, to use the toolbox within its specification, so to say, and uh, to uh, use all the scans, all the tests, all the examinations that you can that are warranted mm. and where you really think that, well, if I have a positive test, I will do this. If I have a negative test, I will do that. And this and that are not the same thing. Yeah. I wonder what, you, what you'd say about healthcare systems. So thinking about in the UK, we've got the National Health Service where kind of cost is built into whether or not people have scans or have interventions compared to countries where there isn't that there's financial kind of capping think about the us where you can pretty much have an infinite number of investigations for the slightest malady so when does so you said to, to use the toolbox 
I can't remember what your phrase was, but let's say reasonably, let's say what it's used for. That would depend, you know, if you're speaking to, I don't know, some cardiologist in the US, he will send away for a gazillion tests because it's all going to be recouped by the insurance company. Whereas in the UK, we've got pretty strict guidance. You just can't have a million tests based on cost. So so when do the finances kind of shape the the use of the toolbox? Yes, the finances definitely uh, shape the the use of of the uh, toolbox and the way of uh, the way or the type of financing system you have do uh, influence. So tons of research show that, but it uh, um, influences less than some would think because even within universal coverage, uh, very well-regulated uh, healthcare systems like you still have uh, in, in the UK, there are also uh, a lot of uh, low-value care given. Uh, there was a, a recent uh, review in British Journal of Surgery uh, listing about, I think, 100 ordinary surgery, uh, surgical procedures that have low value, meaning that it, it doesn't, didn't improve the health of the persons compared to other uh, alternative measures and that have significant costs. Uh, and uh, as I've been studying in particular uh, radiological examinations, there are lots of studies showing that there's low value examinations in the US, but definitely a lot of uh, also uh, from, from European countries where we have a different healthcare system. So I think uh, you're perfectly right that uh, the finance system influences, but even within uh, more, if you would say, austere types of uh, financing systems, uh, we have a lot of uh, low value care. And the reason we have that, although we have in a way a cap on finances, uh, is uh, because uh, uh, some of these mechanisms were we can do. I mean, in radiology, they sometimes say you scan because you can. And because the opportunities, in a way, provide imperatives as patients, we demanded, we expected. I mean, NHS is the pride of, uh, of Britain or UK. So, so uh, I mean, there are huge expectations to mm. both uh, the NHS and other healthcare systems in Europe. And just the, on value... Value. I, I think I recall that paper, and certainly high and low value care is a is a kind of phrase which has been used more frequently. At least I've seen it around. Is value only measured by outcomes? Someone lives longer, they don't die from a disease, or they. It would seem to me that you that, that on an individual level, patients might experience value from a particular intervention without significant risks. And I'm thinking about, I don't know kind of benign treatments, whether it's manual therapy or exercise, which don't necessarily, people aren't, they may not show clear clinical out, improvements and clinical outcomes, but are valued by individuals, by patients, for whatever reasons, they get to spend time with a person, There's yep. some, you know, they feel autonomous and all, all sorts of other reasons which aren't captured by clinical trials, for example. Yeah, I think, the, excellent point. Uh, I think the main interpretation of outcome in, in this setting is exactly as you point out, reduced mortality, uh, reduced morbidity, increased functional status, and increased quality of life. So I think quality of life plays an important role here. So that's definitely in, in there. But you also point to other uh, aspects which may not be as easily captured by the, the ordinary mm. outcome measures. 
And just what to use it to make it very uh, specific, uh, a, a person coming to his uh, or her GP asking, uh, I have pain here and there, could, could you, for instance, low back pain, saying that I'm, I'm so worried, could it be cancer, what, what's, what's wrong, uh, shouldn't you send me to a CT scan or an MRI scan? And the physician said, well, we don't really know whether that will help and so forth. And But it says, uh, yeah, the physician thinks that, well, this will actually help the person. The person will be relieved from this. So, and this is what we find in other uh, studies and also our own, that a lot of um, examinations, radiological examinations are, are made on that ground. And you can say, well, that then it has a value because the patient has a relief uh, and, and feels better. But there are actually people who have studied this and to look on, okay, yeah. is there an anxiolytic, anxiety-reducing effect of these types of examinations? And there is, but it's very, very short-lived. Uh, it's very yeah. short-lived. Yeah. Is that because they're disposed to be more anxious about the next thing? Is it just the, the, yeah. the nature of the individual? Yeah, Exactly. So... I, I think, uh, and I think yeah, a lot of GPs are very uh, sensitive to to uh, to the issue, and they they try not to uh, to send the patients unnecessarily to imaging. But uh, sometimes they think, okay, in this mm. case, I think it may relieve the patient, and and then I think we should should do it. And I, I'm not criticizing them for doing that, but I, I still think we should be aware of that. In, in most cases, even then, it it doesn't work. Again, I'm looking at the time. We've been going for almost two hours and I want you to have some of your day left. And I mean, we've certainly covered up uh, both sections have been absolutely fantastic. I just, if there's anything else, I guess I was conscious not to to, to repeat what we went over in the first, not not today, but with you and Marianne, because I'll, I'll cross-reference that for kind of de-diagnosis. And we, we talked a bit about medicalization in that episode too. So I didn't want to repeat that stuff. So if there's anything else you, we think we want to explore? Uh, there's one uh, more subtle connection, which may be relevant because both medicalization and overdiagnosis is due to the same phenomenon that we try to expand the concept of disease and what we consider to be disease. And there are many ways of doing this expansion. And I think it's important to try to differentiate them because uh, as we pointed out in the podcast with Marianne also uh, by de-diagnosing, when trying to, in a way, counter this unwarranted expansion of disease, we have to know how does disease expand. And I try to identify and differentiate between six types of expansion. There is the epistemic expansion where we get more knowledge and because we get more knowledge, for instance, of these indicators or precursors, we act towards them. And that may be warranted sometimes, but not in other times. And then we have the the case where we make more things disease, which is an ontological expansion. And for instance, when we make ordinary life experiences as grief, disease and that's where we can in a way place uh, medicalization. So the, the third type of expansion is a pragmatic expansion because we can do something, we will do something and of course like we, we can treat obesity so we do so, we can treat hypertension so we do so and the aim is of course to to prevent disease and suffering and then there's a 
fourth type of expansion, which is the conceptual expansion. For instance, we now have pre-diabetes, pre-dementia, and we get all these types of where the concepts are expanded. And the fifth type is the ethical expansion, which we mentioned briefly, where we, because we want to help people, we make a condition disease, and we mentioned homelessness. And then we also have the aesthetic expansion, uh, where we include various types of uh, deformities, which do not hamper function. Mm. And that can be uh, protruding ears or bag under the, uh, bags under the, the eyes of people, where we really uh, do it not for functional reasons, but for aesthetic reasons. So all these ways of expanding can be good, but they can also be bad for us. So the hard part both for us as persons but also as professionals is to figure out when is it good and when is it bad and that's where the ethics comes in thinking of the aesthetic example people with big ears that want to use it in your ear what's the phrase whatever you have your ears made smaller and you said well the aesthetics thing doesn't inhibit someone's function but it does social function the person with the big yeah. ears yeah yeah the person with the big ears as well i can't go out i can't go to parties I've got these big ears i feel embarrassed yeah. and there's a definitely uh, so so uh, a, the the social function is very important but then also it's important to think about the social function because the reason like protruding ears uh, is considered a social uh, problem is enhanced by us treating it and uh, the, the challenge for the individual and the professional is, well, should I take on the burden of changing the norms of society or should I just take it for granted? Okay, that's norms are like this. I can't change it. So I will. Uh, so, so there's a really hard problem there. And I wouldn't blame the individual. I wouldn't. But I, I still think that as professionals and as members of society, we should reflect on these issues. Yeah, that's brilliant. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. Great fun talking to you. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs. And check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.